0: If you haven't signed up for a Discord channel, what the fuck are you doing? Just <laughs> sign up for our Discord channel. How many times do I have to talk about it? At majordomomedia.com, sign up. You're going to get a lot of how-to, eat-better recipes galore, just cultural references, a good engagement by the community, an ever-growing community. We're thankful for everyone participating. It's a great companion to do all the creative things we've done on Major Domo. And will be a, a crucial uh, element to all things we do moving forward. So sign up now and uh, please support all things Momofuku at shop.momofuku.com. All the pantry items from the savory salts to the tingly to the spicy to the soy, the tamari, and of course, our chili crunch and our air dry noodles available nationwide at places like Target and Whole Foods. If you aren't close by, you can buy it all at shop.momofuku.com. All right, let's get on to the show. Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced
1: Tea.
0: Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango. I have a, a, a beleaguered Chris Yang in front of me. <laughs> I'm so tired. Oh, my God. And, like, and you're finally moving into your house.
1: Yeah, yeah it's slowly, slowly piece, happening. Piece by piece, it's happening. But then, you know, we took off for Priya's wedding, and we came home, and I was like, oh, my God, I still don't live in here yet. But I'm back. I'm back. I survived an unbelievable plane ride. Oh, my God. Did Keith go mental? I tried to like, we were, we, you know, last time I talked to you, I was like, two and two is the way to go. This time we sat three and then one. And I try to like be a good, I try to be a good father and, and sit there and take over and be the parent who was sitting with the kids. And you know what my son said? I don't like Baba. <laughs> Just Get refuse. in line. Get in line, Keith. <laughs> I'm
0: currently recording this and my son, it's almost 9 p.m., refuses to go to bed. I'm looking wait, at wait. the screen in, to my lower left, and I am just waiting for him to climb out of his fucking bed.
1: Is he standing?
0: He's, he knows. Here's the thing he knows that I'm looking at him via the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just a he's... game of a chicken. And what he really wants to do is for me to come in and barge into the room.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, what mm-hmm. he's,
0: that's what the game of chicken is. 100%. He really doesn't want to get out of bed, but he wants me to get off my ass. How's your willpower? I'm so mad at him right now. <laughs> I mean, I look at Gus; he's just knocked out. Angel, knocked out. Perfect God bless angel. Him. Hugo, <laughs> God, just go to bed.
1: Now I can't. Now I can't help but notice a, a mini mini drum kit over your shoulder there, too, Chang. What What the hell are you doing over there? So. um... I had to put it back together. It's missing a few pieces.
0: So last Super Bowl, I was at our good friend Jimmy Kimmel's house. Mm-hmm. And um, Jimmy Kimmel has, God bless the Saint Jimmy Kimmel. I, I love him so much. And he's got a great sense of humor. One of the funniest people ever. And he's a patron saint of a lot of things, but also of good humor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Hugo's friends with his son and they were screwing around and Hugo, Saw a spare set of a drum set and and, um, immediately started wailing on it. A few days later, Uncle Jimmy sends Hugo a a nice present.
1: (laughs) What a dick! (laughs) That's aggressive, man. That's aggressive. That's not like, oh, I sent your kid this truck that makes a loud siren that you can turn off. No, no, a drum kit is like. And like That's pretty funny. he he
0: <laughs> was really into it for about a month, and it was so loud. And now he's re like, and then it. I mean, Super Bowl was February, so several months ago. It has come back with a white heat. <laughs> he's, where is it? How come the symbols missing? It's like Hugo, you're the one that put it. <laughs> just, took all the wig nuts and the screws loose. I don't know where they all are. <laughs> Find it. <laughs> Hugo, I don't know where they are. <laughs> Fix it, Dad. Oh my God! So um, I had to put it back together as best I could, and that's what you see behind me right now.
1: I like that it's in your office area, though. Too, he comes in and, and, and jams with you. He's young John Bonham, <laughs> and you know what? He we, we I can't
0: find the kick drum. I mean, on the what's it called on the snare or the the the,
1: the bass the bass drum,
0: the bass drum where you just press the pedal. Mm-hmm. I can't find it. So what he does is he wails on, he goes boom, boom, boom. And he wails on it below
1: with, a, uh. <laughs> he swings down low. He, he swings down it. low and he hits <laughs> it that way. Wait, that's, that's, that's a pretty sick move. I don't know anything about drumming, but if that becomes yeah. his signature drumming move, that'd be pretty amazing.
0: Oh Lord. I hope he doesn't become like
1: Dave Cho. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> In any way, shape or form.
0: But, um, We've we've been traveling around a lot, and it's the beginning of uh, uh, a new year for restaurants, right? September Labor Day is the new year. It is. There's the there's the what uh, the Roman calendar or what what's the calendar that we use right now? The Gregorian, the Gregorian Gregorian
1: calendar. Uh uh-huh. yeah,
0: wh- Whoever that person was, good job, Greg. <laughs> good job, Greg. Greg. Good job, Greg. <laughs> good job, Greg. <laughs> you are immortal. Um, good job, Greg. And then you have the Chinese calendar.
1: Sure, sure, sure.
2: And
0: then you we have the restaurant the calendar,
1: calendar mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. begins Labor Day. What happens pre-Labor Day? Like Every is-
0: fucking periodical that covers food is the hot new restaurant or the shit you're going to eat. And check out the hottest new dishes and every kind of hyperbolic word to get you to read this fucking article. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right.
0: That's out now. And some of these issue. restaurants are like, yeah, it's September. Some of these restaurants won't open up till 2024.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Most anticipated openings. And then like the and then like the restaurant that doesn't open for four more weeks is like the essential six restaurants. And it's like, no, you haven't even been there yet. I really
0: enjoy not letting anybody know
1: that you're opening. just opening.
0: That was my goal. That was always my goal. Uh-huh. You don't know how many times we would open up something under a completely different pseudonym with different everything, different LLCs, just to throw off
1: people. Why the? Why do I want you to know? There's no. There's nothing to gain. Because okay, so a noodle bar was like already under the weather, under the radar just because it was under the radar.
0: Yeah, but at at a certain at a certain point you can't hide it. But like the first several restaurants we opened up were literally. You know, Delta Force. You had a fake menu
1: outside of Co. Right? Is that am I remembering that
0: correctly? I can't remember what it was called exactly. But I made up that
1: menu, Bar and Grill, or something. Right? It was Bar and Grill.
0: It was like PJ's Bar and Grill, or something like that. (laughs) With a with a trio of ketchup (laughs) with your truffle fries, (laughs) which would have done just fine, honestly.
1: Which would have just (laughs) done fine
0: because I just I don't want people to know. I I I really want to like especially in those early days, earn the right for people to write about it or to know. And the very first restaurant, and I was so embarrassed. I didn't want anyone to know, literally. I remember the Robs, they, who, who recently stepped down from editors of New York Magazine. They really were extremely good at finding stories. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how. They must go through the uh, Con Ed new <laughs> bills department and just like hunt it down, you know? Right. They're extremely good at at sleuthing around. And I remember that very first restaurant, 163 First Avenue, I had everything in paper. Nobody had decided to work with me yet. Kino was probably a week away from joining. It was just me. And I got a knock on the door and it was this person that later turned out to be Robin, Robin Racefeld. And and I didn't even know who the fuck she was. And she was like, so uh, what is this? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about.
1: That's amazing. That's so,
0: I, mean, like, I, don't know I, I really... wouldn't even tell her my name. I didn't even tell her my name. I didn't want her to know. I didn't even know. I didn't have PR. That's a, this is a whole other thing, too. I didn't have PR. Right. I think one of the reasons why I just learned how to talk to people in an unorthodox way is if I had enough money and hired a PR person like everyone else, I would never have developed any kind of rapport with any of the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simply by answering the phone and being like, "Hello, I'm from Time Out Magazine." I'm like, "Hey, what's up?"
1: <laughs> uh, it's me. Uh, can I speak to David? You're Like, yeah. What do you want? <laughs> You're like, "There's nobody else here. Who else would? Yeah. who else would be here?" It's anyway. Just me. Like,
0: I was so embarrassed. I didn't want them to know it was me. I didn't want. I was so embarrassed about even opening a restaurant. I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't even give them my name. And I, I refused to let them even print the very first sort of. Right up in New York Magazine, they, I, riffed, I didn't even give them my name. I, would, I wouldn't let them use it. They just said a veteran of like craft. And that's how different things are now. And now in 2022, it's like you got to get that fucking word out there immediately. You right. got to start building that br- buzz. It's literally like running for um, you know, your, your party's primary. Mm-hmm. Y- you gotta, you're fighting. You're fighting and fighting, fighting for that like press top of the billing
1: shit. Well, you're like, so I mean, and like I mean, that just speaks to the business, right? You're like so over leveraged that if you're not packed from you don't want to be packed from minute one, you want to like get your feet under you. You want to figure out how to cook the food you want to do. You want to figure out your kitchen. You want to like learn how to do service, but you're so leveraged, so over leveraged that if you're not packed from minute one, like you're fucked, right? Like that's the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Very few people have the budget to go six months to a year with losing money.
1: Right, which is the which every restaurant, every chef would love to have six months to like figure it out. Any normal business outside of the restaurant business would be
0: like lose all of their hair Mm -hmm. and go and just be in complete shock at the tightrope that restaurateurs operate under. That stress, right? And and again, that stress is something that I don't think is really ever understood by anybody writing about food. Right, that tight tight wire. But the reality is, with all of this food coverage about restaurant openings, what they don't do, and I will say, what we need to be doing a better job is giving restaurants the opportunity to grow and to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense in the world to write a review on a restaurant to me the first month, the first two months, the first three months.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say, like, positive or not. It's still not like helpful to write a review. Even if it's a glowing review.
0: I, I would say most people would agree that six months is the the right time to like go to a new restaurant or, or to like mm-hmm. properly review a restaurant. Wouldn't you mm-hmm. agree? It's about six months. You, you have no idea what you're doing. Even yeah. in sports, there's literally three months, four months of preseason before football begins. there's preseason for everything has like exhibition right imagine if your professional sports team did just was like that's it or um no spring training where was
1: this beginning? <laughs> that's the other thing, like preseason or not they have practices <laughs> like restaurants don't get to practice i mean not really yeah yeah, like... friends and family but you don't
0: have that budget right again and i i i have a very distinct philosophy on friends and family your friends and family are there to be guinea pigs, not to enjoy themselves.
1: Yeah, this is my favorite thing. Can you explain what friends and family is and like your different approach to it? Usually friends and family is what?
0: Friends and family is for literally friends and family of the people that work there, the people that might have invested, the people that are close in the inner circle of that restaurant, the purveyors, the vendors, the you know, the people that are the first circle of support to to try. You have to. Do a test run. Yeah, one. I mean, two, I three remember nights. when we opened up Toronto ten years ago. We did like three weeks. You know, that was crazy. <laughs> that was the most insane amount we've ever did because we did four restaurants in, in um, one building at the in same one time. building in three weeks. So you, it was like a staggered amount of that was just crazy. But the reality is, you need to test it out if you have the money to do so. That's just the reality. So we we would I developed a, a, a crazy thing of making. Situations, every bad situation like happen during friends and family. So it's a test run, and and you don't know what the books are, and you make it real. For example, when you have a reservation and say there's a it's a fifty seat restaurant, you have one hundred fifty people on the books, so you're doing three turns that you know of, right? And if it's a busy restaurant and it's fifty seats, you're doing three turns. The reality is you're probably doing one hundred seventy five to one hundred ninety because of walk ins, etc. That is like full on, and a lot of people have five to seven o'clock reservations. But the reality is a lot of people that have five o'clock reservations don't show up at five o'clock. They show up at five fifteen, mm-hmm. five twenty, or they're assholes and they go for a cigarette. And that at, at 15 minutes at one table adds up with another table. And next thing you know, a whole second turn gets pushed 30 minutes and you're fucked. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then so on. The second turn doesn't show up from 7 to 8.30. So the third turn gets pushed an hour. And the reality is everyone comes at 7.30 to 8 o'clock. Yeah. And you're effed. Right. So, so you know, if it's a 50 cent restaurant, if it was up to me, I'd be, okay, we're doing the full turn at 7.30. <laughs> Every you tell all your friends and family, oh, you want a 730 reservation? Great, you got it. Oh, we have a wonderful reservation for you today, 730. <laughs> oh, so this you, is you, you can only dine at 7, 730. Great. You also have 730. <laughs> Everyone gets a 730 reservation. All 200, you don't tell you have anybody. a
1: 730 reservation. And
0: in the book that the the Matrodale reservationist has, has, you write it out all organized at 530, 6 o'clock, 615, structured like it should have been. But in reality, is the kind of reservation seating that i just described everyone's coming at the same fucking time you know buckle up it's going to go down right right and then it's like okay um you tell one of your managers to drop a tray of glasses that you might have bought and they're
1: already chipped or whatever and then you unplug the ice machine right But but, but, but what's important here, though, is like this is not. I mean, you tell me if other chefs do this, because in my experience, like friends and family usually is not what you're describing. It's usually, we're going to say it's going to be an easy service. We're going to space everything out. We're going to like just dry run it. Every, there's going to be a limited menu. We're going to tell people they can only order this, this, and this. And everything is going to be, you know, comp. We're just doing like a nice party for our friends. That's like a usual friends and family service. No, you're doing the fundamentally,
0: fundamentally disagree. (laughs) Right. The people You're, that are friends and family, if they have a bad time at that restaurant in the first few survey, services and they're like pissed off, what are they gonna do? Write a right. Yelp review? Right. <laughs> Go tell Eater. Like, right. no.
1: If they're pissed off, they're not your friends
0: and family. Exactly. <laughs> Who cares? If you need somebody to be angry at you, they are your friends and family. Right. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly why they're there. They're guinea pigs. And you want to push it to the breaking point. You want to push the restaurant to the breaking point. But I'm just saying a lot of restaurants don't have that opportunity. They don't, they need to start making money, paying vendors ASAP. And I, I just think it, it's not, if we're promoting the restaurants to open up, and it's this game where I think a lot of restaurants don't even want to be promoting themselves because they want to, you know, earn the, the the sort of like the team chemistry and et cetera. They would rather slow it down, but you have to pay the bills. But I would just suggest for everyone that's thinking about going to a new restaurant and they're excited about it, as we all are, to give them some time. And if you go to a restaurant that you're excited about and you have a bad meal or a bad experience or bad service – don't fucking write about it on Yelp. Don't bitch about it. You're the fucking dummy. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I don't get mad when I watch pre, uh, pre-season football. Well, that's <laughs> garbage. <laughs> it's supposed to be garbage. Yeah. And I always say, if a restaurant is really good in its first week, something is fundamentally wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you want to give them some time. And I'm just saying, anybody that's listening, you're going to go to some of these new restaurants in your respective towns. Just be patient you should love them unconditionally and celebrate them like long-term and and that's what we need more of long-term focus not short-term
1: yeah and and, and across the board like i mean i'm sure you can name plenty of names too but like I, I i remember plenty of restaurants that i would consider now among my favorites that i went to early on and didn't have a good meal and like i just remember being like this is very disappointing but it's also week four so i think that like If they're, it's not to say people shouldn't go, you should go, but you should just also understand that like
0: (laughs) our good friend, Dan Justi of brigade, formerly the chef's cuisine of Noma. Uh, we love him. We love him dearly. It's been a long time in the beginning days of the pandemic. We, we, we would
1: talk, we had a standing Wednesday night call every week that would last for like four hours. Like we didn't record it or anything. We just like talked every week. We needed someone
0: to talk to Dan posted something recently and I'm just going to read it. If you go out and eat at a restaurant and you enjoy it, I'm going to just make it one addendum. Even if you don't enjoy it, that's not what he said. He just said, if you enjoy it, make sure to share your experience far and wide. It's about time that we stop relying on guides and accolades to tell us where to eat. In my opinion, they have been and are still ruining the industry. Strong words by Dan Justi. I don't know if I agree with them. Hmm. Of course I agree with them, But... <laughs> Listen, it's not – they're not – I would say they're not. Like, we all use them. But I think what Dan's trying to say is that we're picking out the things that are sellable, that have buzz. It's more short-term focused. We need the long-term focus. That's all I'm saying. With all of this hype about the new restaurants, let's have some patience and let's focus on the restaurants that are clearly being written about. But also, something that we've been talking about a lot the past few months – Let's celebrate the restaurants that are not being written about that are maybe next door to these restaurants as well. Mm-hmm. That being exactly. said, I'm, I am I want to talk about some of the restaurants in New York that I'm excited about. Um, one is Teresi Italian Specialties is opening up under Rich Teresi. That's going to be the, his namesake restaurant. It's um, very close to the very first one of Teresi Italian Specialties. Uh, I'm close to those guys. We used to cook together years ago at Cafe Blue, in 2003. It's been remarkable to see all of us grow up. And Rich and I used to hate each other. We were mortal enemies. <laughs> like, there's no one I hated more than Rich Teresi and like. When you were we, working together? Uh, when you were uh, working together. Yes, when we were working together. We outright hate, like hated each other. I would go home on the subway, and be like, fuck that guy. I hate him so much. What a fucking prick. Fuck you. I hate you. Right.
2: I'm sure How he's in the lie? next car
0: over just
1: saying the exact same thing about you.
0: <laughs> but he's such a good cook, and uh, I'm so glad that we've become good friends over the years, and I haven't seen him in a while, and Mario Carbone, and, and they've grown that business with Jeff Zelaznik. So Teresi, I think when that opened up, it was just a special thing. And and it was right before the the boom of food media and just the the eye of Sauron on it, right? So you were able to do things under the radar and to grow. And the fact that Torrisi Italian Specialties opened up, and I remember no, not that many people were writing about it. It had time. It gained credibility with the industry and people, and it just was able to blossom into something that no one had seen before, using their credibility, their experience to turn Italian-American food sort of on its head and, you know, the rest is sort of history, I'm excited to see what the new iteration of Teresa Italian Specialties is because people need to know that one of the reasons they're so successful is Rich and Mario, they've cooked at some of the very best restaurants in Europe and in America, and they've spent a lot of time perfecting their craft. So I'm excited to see what they're going to be doing at the new Teresia. It's in the puck building, very close to the original. I'm excited for our good friend, Brooks Headley's Superiority Burger that just whew, is re- reopening. Um, I don't know if he's keeping the original location of Superiority Burger in, 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 alphabet, in um, 10th and A or 9th and A. Mm-hmm. He's opening up in the old Odessa space, which was a, um, I think it was like a Ukrainian or, or Polish uh, diner. And I've been there several times. Odessa is, uh, I think it's 119 Avenue A, I think, yeah. It's a big restaurant. I think it's got a seat anywhere from 60 to 90 seats. So uh, I know when Brooks wanted to open up Superiority Burger, he was so burnt out on fine dining, he was excited just to plate things on paper plates and boats. So this is exciting to see this new iteration of what he's doing. I think uh, Brooks is one of the very best uh, chefs America's produced and just the ingenuity and love and passion he has for. Market-driven stuff, and you know it's just awesome. He makes delicious stuff, so I'm excited. And what he I'm did really Out excited.
1: of like a literal postage stamp for for all these years, it's like oh, un- take, un- unbelievable. Take, take it
0: easy. Do more, Brooks. <laughs> you could have done more, buddy. Okay. <laughs> we love like, you, man. We love you. So tiny. <laughs> we we love you so much, Brooks, and we're very excited and so stoked for you. And our other good friend um, Kwame Unuachi is opening up in. The most, like, I mean, this is huge, huge pressure. David Geffen Hall, mm-hmm. Lincoln Center, the refurbed, and he's opening up Tatiana, doing his his food of Afro-Caribbean, uh, the flavors that he's been so good at cooking for so long. That That's a big time opening, man.
1: Yeah. I keep that's waiting for huge. Kwame to do something like for the next thing Kwame does to be a smaller thing. But everything he does, the next one is bigger. It's easy; a maniac.
0: And we're we're going to we're going to be covering restaurants. We barely scratch the surface with New York, but we're going to be getting experts in respective cities—not every city, but a lot of cities—and we're going to get their opinions about what to eat. You know, real takes by real people that know what the fuck they're talking about. So that that will be coming in, in the coming months. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to say, the other trend is all things Korean, right? So the first wave of Korean food was the Korean kalbi, the Korean barbecue. The second wave is this modern Korean food that New York City is really becoming the epicenter of. Uh, with the uh, Autoboy, Boy, Mix, you have Ouija, you have Hunikin, you have a bunch of Korean chefs. You have, I think Doug Kim, he has that ramen shop. Ah, oh, fuck, you got a mission starred. There's just some of the best Korean chefs and Korean American chefs doing very progressive Korean cooking that is unique. And it's a merger of a lot of different things. And it's a synthesis of Korean food in different ways. And it's beyond exciting. And a lot of the flavors and a lot of the buzz seems to be Korean food. A lot of Korean restaurants. I, I, I think the third wave, which I'm anticipating is the next level which is what I I'm, I'm I want to get into a little bit, which is the foods of the foods that are comfort foods, the Korean dishes that you might see uh, at a restaurant that just specializes in one thing or foods that you might see at home. And I'm going to extrapolate that to a little bit of for Japanese food as well. Right. In the same vein, I would love more restaurants to be more izakaya like, but not in the izakaya where you have yakitori, you know, and, uh,
1: not and the like greatest it. hits kind of izakaya, where it's just everything under the sun.
0: No, it's the izakaya that's like this is home cooking kind of stuff. The stuff that, yeah, you still might get it, but it might be a little bit more rustico. It might be Otafuku in, in Gardena. We we covered it in uh, Breakfast Lunch Dinner Netflix. That to me is to me like a perfect kind of restaurant. Mm-hmm. That's a local establishment. They get good ingredients. Is it the best Japanese food you ever? No, that's not. That's not the point. But it's extremely well done. They get great ingredients, and it's the kind of food that doesn't move the cultural needle—at least from the media perspective, right? Right. It doesn't have the flash ingredients. Doesn't have the, you know, caterpillar roll. Doesn't have the sizzling wagyu bullshit. Doesn't have any of that stuff. It's just the real food that people eat in Japan, Mm -hmm. you know. And if that was close to me, I'd be there all the time. There's a restaurant that I want to check out, and it's in the David Cho universe, Subaki. He also owns Oto Next Door, and that supposedly is a version of Otofuku in the east side of LA. So I'm excited to check that out. So I, I, I have a better understanding of that kind of food in, in Japanese cuisine. It doesn't really exist yet in a Korean level, right? That's mm-hmm. what I would hope. That's what I hope the third wave for Korean food is going to be. Is not the fusion and stuff, not the 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 new way of cooking Korean food that is happening. Right, I'm already looking around the corner as just like the comfort stuff, the stuff that isn't what you get when you go to a Korean restaurant. The the stuff that is more of the esoteric variety.
1: Do you think that that do you do you see that third wave as happening under the radar, or do you see that as happening with like? splashy openings like this is no a... it's
0: it, it happens with time mm-hmm. it happens with the population of of food literacy where people want, want it you know mm-hmm. and i think that one of the things that happened with japanese food is there's a lot of things and this is something that we've been potentially pitching as a show uh understanding exactly why japanese food is more popular than ever but a lot of it has to do with travel and a lot of that has to do with japanese chefs in tokyo in japan realizing that wait a second i've been working at this restaurant 20 years i may never get an opportunity uh i can run my own restaurant Mm -hmm. in 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 the states yeah great (laughs) let's fucking do that
1: yeah way better than just like yeah (laughs) yeah. then toasting the seaweed for another 30 years
0: (laughs) yeah korea (laughs) korean culture is about to change i think um it's not just because of Squid Game. It's not just because of BTS. It's not just because of the domination that it's had culturally the past year or two. I think people are going to be visiting Korea. I think we are at the beginnings, really the beginning. I I was wrong, and I was talking to a couple of my Korean chef friends about this. I was wrong a couple of years ago thinking that we were reaching a peak. I think I underestimated the, the, the palates of people. I also think that it's the... If I can take a step back and realize that Korean food is so pungent and so powerful and so spicy, it's it's got a lot of flavor that is like the next evolution if you're eating Chinese food and, and Japanese food. And it's not the, the Korean barbecue flavors, it's the other things that are on the periphery that I think are going to get a lot more attention moving forward. Because we barely have scratched the surface on Korean food. Got me thinking, Chris, you know what we should probably be doing is making a Korean cookbook <laughs> probably,
1: probably probably should have been doing that for a while. Probably should have That's been doing true. that for a while. I mean, do you think like not to not to take take you off track here, but like do you think that you sort of under index Korean food again because like you're so close to it because like you didn't uh, because you because it's your flavors?
0: What I what I underestimated was the development of other cuisines, and how that is a gateway drug to Korean mm-hmm. food. That's mm-hmm. what I underestimated, and because I I think I underestimated. You're right because I was too close to Japanese food as well, right? I couldn't see that as clearly as I can today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People are so much more well versed in Japanese food, which is why like when we had kawi you know, so many things would have been different without the fucking pandemic, man. Like <laughs> so many fucking things would have been different because we had a whole plan on just of what Korean food could be in terms of raw and where. So I know we are going to be doing a lot of things with where, and you're seeing that with some of the Korean kimbap and, and hand roll spots with, uh, I can't remember the names. Like you're seeing that more and more. That is the evolution. And we talked a little bit about on the Hulu show, Next Thing You Eat, that few cycles down the road, it's gonna be all sort of Marisco Jalisco style sushi. Like that's definitely gonna happen. But I think between now and then, you're gonna have this real hybridization of Korean Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um because Korean raw fish can be anything. Right. Whereas Japanese sushi has to be very specific. And that's why I think. We're just beginning. I, I I felt that way before the pandemic, but again, I was a little too close to that, and you know, things were beyond our control. So I feel pretty strongly that Korean raw food, raw where is raw? All the raw shit is going to become like super fucking in vogue. People are going to be. You're going to see this. Mark my words, you're going to see this. I'm going to say within the year, you're going to go to your local grocery store and you're going to see these look like california rolls but now they're going to be called kimbap right (laughs) korean Mm -hmm. sushi or they'd be called korean sushi and it's but it's going to be uh the nori is going to with the kim will be on the outside not inverted and instead of wasabi or maybe there'll be wasabi in that package of pickled ginger there'll also be a package of gochujang Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's like how it starts to happen
1: I, i i think that um Hearing you say that, hearing you say that prediction, like that does seem like the most obvious thing in the world. Like we've been talking around it for so long, like on on the show so long now, just like how insane it is that people eat raw fish and like the appetite for raw fish is so crazy in America, but like it's only been Japanese. (laughs) And the fact that there is a, there, there are other, I mean, Korean specifically, another culture of eating raw fish. Like once people make that connection I think it, I think you're totally right. I think the floodgates are going to open.
0: It's already happened with, with some of the people that write about it where they call it Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, Korean sushi. And then you're going to have somebody be like writing a damning article about how you can't say that. And then everyone's going to be like, I can't. <laughs> I, I never
1: said that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but then you're going to be like. And then it's going to overindex gonna be- to like. <laughs>
0: Korean, Koreanness. And I people know. aren't gonna know what to fucking say or what to write about anymore. But you're but, gonna be like,
1: I've been I've already been complaining about this for 10 years, guys. Get on the fucking boat. But
0: I think we're at this beginning level of what the not the beginning, the beginnings of the third wave. If you would say Korean food, first wave being Korean barbecue and it's been around forever, second wave being this modern Korean. The third wave to me is all the other shit that mm-hmm. people don't eat. You know, and like, for example, sundae, like the Korean blood sausage, which I don't like to eat. You Once you start to see, I'm just saying some white fucking dude or woman put their Korean blood sausage on the menu, it's game
1: over. Right. It's going to be part of a full English Korean breakfast <laughs> with Korean. And again, I say sundae. that not
0: in a disparaging way. I actually say that game over like this is this is good.
1: This is mm-hmm. how you gain adoption. You're saying game over like, well, we're in. Then we're in, and we're never going away.
0: <laughs> no, we're never going back. And part of what we've been discussing, I think, just offline, me and you and a few other people, is what happens when everything gets discovered.
1: Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> there is like an end. There is like there is a, a limit. There's a limit to the stuff that's out there. But I mean, do you think that this is? I mean, I know we haven't. You haven't been to Korea in a long time, but like, do you think any of this is? Do you think Ameri- Korean food in America is? Uh, in the, cognizant at all of what's happening in korea i feel like it's not the case with japanese food i feel like when you go to japan you're like oh my god like this is a complete like this has nothing to do with what's happening in america
0: this is my armchair anthropologist sociologist point of view there are more innovations in korea that we don't even know they just happen right like they 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 invent chimec.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: what the fuck you're <laughs> you just adopted Bavarian beer making and and chicken frying and you turn it into one thing and you're serving it with, you know, Korean pickled radishes. What? Mm-hmm. They're just the merging of things that are happening. Even like yakiniku right now in Korean barbecue. A lot of the top Korean barbecue spots are merging with yakiniku where they serve it with wasabi. And people might say, oh, that's Japanese. Like, no, motherfucker, that's actually Korean. <laughs> Koreans mm-hmm. are taking back some of the things from the Japanese. So it's just, it's happening at a pace simply because of more rapid pace because there's just more of it there. So it can evolve. LA, Korean food, evolves in a different way because of the ingredients, right? If you go to, say, Park's barbecue, you can get tortilla chips and cilantro mm-hmm. on, on on like rice paper and things like this. This is amazing, but it slowly happens and it happens in a malt, melting pot like LA. New York was not part of that evolution for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it had to be primed with Korean food. It had to be primed with flavors of Sichuan. It had to be primed with Japanese sushi. It had to be primed with all this travel to now adopt this new wave of what Korean food could be, a modern interpretation of what Korean food is, where you're taking chefs that have trained at some of the best three mission-star restaurants in the world, and they take that idea that Korean food could be anything. And it's really a lot of the stuff from what Corey has done at Bennu, where if you look at you're like, is that Korean, or is that Chinese, is that Japanese? I don't even know. And that's where the beautiful thing about what Korean, modern Korean is going to be, is that it can be anything. That to me is what's exciting, is that if you really look at it, Korean food is not beholden to anything. It can be fucking anything. Cause that's mm-hmm. just the, that is just the country. It's like, fuck you. We could do anything we fucking want to do. And that's mm-hmm. what you're going to see on the super high-end level. And for a while in the n- late 90s, early aughts, you saw Spanish food really take over and become like the, the, the main sort of color of a lot of cooking globally. Then it became, you know, Garnier and fucking Passard. And then it became Noma. You saw cloudberries and new Scandinavian cooking everywhere. I would bet a fucking extraordinary amount of money that the new in-vogue thing you're going to see is the Korean, modern Korean element in plating and dishes the world over. I have no fucking doubt. You're excited about that? I don't know if it's exciting. I just want people <laughs> to know. It's like, <laughs> I' fucking coming. told you. We <laughs> fucking told you.
1: Assuming your third wave happens, and you start to see less of the, whatever, kalbi bibimbap stuff, and you see, and it's not headed in the direction of sort of fine dining, but it's more of that home cooking stuff you're talking about, the, the 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 widest possibilities. I think once you start seeing specific dishes emerge in that trend, what will happen next is they will start popping up on those regular K-Town like Colby menus and things like that. You're just going to start seeing these like it's going to sort of reverse engineer back to your like standard Korean American restaurant. And I think what you're you're driving toward is like. This is the emergence of like an actual, a new like Korean American identity for like food and like that, that's outside of Korea or anything else that's existed before it.
0: If I was a younger person, I would open up this kind of restaurant. I would, it would be like, like a 10 seat restaurant and I would serve just stews. Mm-hmm. That's it? <laughs> I would literally just serve stews over the counter. Like it was a short order cook, but not. I clearly, maybe like the old school noodle bar days, but they'd be, um it'd be like one hundred twenty dollars for each person just for the food, and you'd get some panjan, but you'd get a grilled piece of fish, and then I'm cooking you a rice, and then I'm making you a jige, you and think- that's it. And I and for dessert, here's a fucking popsicle, and get the fuck out. <laughs> What's
1: so crazy is like, and you can't right put that-
0: the rice in the jige; you have to eat it on a. Brass spoon where you burn the shit out of your mouth. That's the <laughs> only way. And I mean, like, I mean that, like, I, I, what I just described doesn't sound like, I know it sounds like, I'm serious. It was just like, I'm just making a jige and I'm making it with jangs in jeans, the the building blocks in Korean food that I'm making. And there's no bullshit. And here it is. Here is the beautiful doenjang jige. You've never had it before. You've never had anything that tasted like this and all the variations of that. I think that kind of cooking where there's no bullshit, because that's where I think we're all headed regardless is in a world where everyone knows everything to a certain degree or has access to the same information, what is going to separate restaurants is the ability to execute it better than anybody else. And Mm. I think that execution really depends on one thing. I care more about making this than you do, and I want them to come across in the food. That's a restaurant I would open up, and I believe that if I did that, the other idea I want to do is that sort of omakase barbecue, barbecue restaurant. So I'm just giving everyone free ideas
1: here. <laughs> the thing about that, I mean, both of those sound amazing, but I also feel like we've mentioned this omakase barbecue thing enough times that, like, it's out there now, and I'm pretty sure it's going to happen without you shaking. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're going to regret having spoken it into existence. <laughs>
0: I'm not worried. (laughs) People have stolen a lot of ideas from me over the years. Uh, I make people a lot of money.
1: Oh, my God. I remember when Danny Bowen, we were doing Mission Chinese in, in San Francisco, the very, very early days. And one of his first dishes was that like Kung Pao pastrami, where he was just doing Kung Pao with pastrami. And I remember just like nine months into it, a year into it, the random Chinese restaurant on the other side of town just had started serving Kung Pao pastrami. I was like this is insane that it's like working backwards this way like it wasn't like a splashy restaurant it wasn't a chef restaurant it was just like a takeout Chinese American place and I think about like what you're saying with Korean food and I think like so at at, uh, San Ho you know Corey's doing his Sunday Pajang you know the pancake right he's like I've never seen this before I bet you'll start seeing that like at random places like it's just like going to create its own system way to go Corey Lee congratulations You're the best. (laughs) This has been another tribute to Corey Lee episode of the Dave Chang Show. So
0: just as an example of how things are going to change. There are many Japanese restaurants that you think are Japanese, but the owners and the people working there are actually fucking Korean Mm -hmm. and they're making Japanese food because they know that you think that they're, they're Japanese (laughs) (laughs) and They may speak <laughs> Japanese, as many Korean people do. We don't have to talk about that history, and you don't have to talk about pachinko. There's so many people like, I had no fucking idea that that was Korean history. <laughs> but um, that's definitely the case. A, a high percentage of Japanese restaurants are actually owned and operated by Korean people. Right. You're talking about your standard sushi restaurant, or your standard, yes, yeah. it's acceptable, and it's it's also what people want. It's in vogue. We're gonna make you fucking. California, maki rolls, whatever. And we're going to do good business, but we're not going to let anybody know that we're Korean. You may hear it. Like when I go to one of these restaurants and I hear them speaking Korean, I'm like, you motherfuckers. I knew it. <laughs> what will happen over the next year to 36 months is these restaurants, much like the Kung Pao pastrami, they're going to feel it. This is how it all happens. They're going to see something like attaboy or whatever some restaurant just cr- doing better and better. and It's going to give them the confidence to say mm-hmm. to themselves, what the fuck am I making Japanese food for? Fuck this.
1: I think you're 100% right. And then you know, they're going to start serving like, their own shit. What
0: the fuck am I giving money? To, what the fuck? I'm not fucking Japanese. I'm going to serve this with gochujang. I'm going to serve this with, fuck you, shiso, you wuss. We're going we're to serve getting you. Yeah.
1: If I may, If I may, Dave, I think you know that this is going to happen because when I hear you tell a story about a restaurant serving nominally Japanese food and customers coming in just assuming the person is Japanese, and then that person eventually developing confidence to serve Korean food, sounds a lot like a story I've heard before, Dave. (laughs) Sounds a lot like a certain Mr. David Chang opening a ramen restaurant and nobody knowing that he wasn't Japanese. Can and I eventually say, can finding can his just, own yeah.
0: fucking voice. Can I just say this? This is funny. Because, like, Grace never really read any of these stuff they, that happened before. And because of the bear, she had a better understanding. And she always thought that I was just being hyperbolic in 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 in, in, in my, like, grandiose exaggerations of things. But I was like, nobody ever served s- steam buns with Mhm Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: when I told that to her, she's like, whatever. And now she's like, oh, I get it. Right. So I was like, I didn't invent either. But that was like, I did it. I can say that, funda- like, really now, after almost 20 years, like, I did something that nobody in the fucking world had ever, really, ever done. And I can actually say that without even doing much homework to know that because no one even gave a fuck about ramen and nobody mm-hmm. was really eating steam buns and there was no internet really at the time to do any of this stuff. And I had every ramen book p- possible and there was no place serving steam buns with ramen it was mm-hmm. gyoza and it was chahan and it was much more of a chinese uh, ramen shop ramen so like yeah now that you see that and people can be like oh wait i can do this great i don't have to be beholden to this certain genre yeah you can do whatever the fuck you want to do
1: which is the better takeaway, honestly. I mean, like, I, I think that that is the takeaway that you would hope more people would come away with rather than just like, oh, now I should serve steam buns with ramen. Like, that's not the takeaway. The takeaway is like, do whatever the fuck feels right. Just like do it. Yeah. That's how that's it. you know it's not, it's not I like didn't a put big two and two together. Invention.
0: Yeah. That wasn't some divine like message from God. It was I had no idea what else to serve. I needed some vessel to serve more pork belly that I had left over. (laughs) Fuck it. Let's just do it.
1: Steam bun looks pretty fucking good. Let's do this. (laughs) Yeah. It's unbelievable. I think about that. I mean, like, I I know. I mean, not to toot your horn here, but, like, it's... I would say steam buns are probably available at now at 75% plus of all ramen restaurants in America.
0: Yeah. And if I was able to trademark that, great. (laughs) God damn it. Like, I have been wrong. Listen, if you're wrong on timing, you're still wrong. But man, I was right on the fucking concepts and trends, man, for so many fucking
2: things.
1: I know. I
2: I know. A little early here and
1: there, a little early here and there, unfortunately. Jesus Christ.
0: I wanted to talk about a few. I didn't think we were going to get so stuck on this Korean conundrum. But the second thing I wanted to just say as a sort of a PSA, and it's not really going to be helpful to anyone opening up a restaurant right now. But if I was opening up my first restaurant, if I was literally planning to open my first restaurant right now, this is going to piss off people because I'm going to tell them it's hard enough raising money to open up one restaurant. It's hard enough because banks probably won't give you a loan. You have to uh, mortgage, a lot of things. You have to guarantee payments, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to say that you shouldn't think about opening up a restaurant unless you have the money raised by the real estate. Hmm. For the amount of money you would need to open up, say, in a larger metropolitan city like LA, San Fran, New York City, I bet you with that same amount of money raised, you could actually buy a building in a secondary or tertiary city when I say in terms of population size. I think that would give you, going back to how we were first talking about restaurants, a, a safety net for your investment, because ultimately you're just giving money away to a landlord and, and improving the, the 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 building for 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 nothing ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I would say that if you were going to spend the time to do it, it's an added level of difficulty, another impossible door that you need to gain entry to. But I would say it's worth it because. In the event that your restaurant doesn't work, you have something. right? And also, you are your own tenant, your own landlord. There's a lot of positives to that. that, I was talking to somebody about it recently, and I said, that's what I would suggest you do, is find a place where that money would stretch out, where you can buy the fucking building. I'm always impressed by chefs that have opened one restaurant or two restaurants, and they've really been methodical at their growth. But they're really wealthy. You know why? They bought the fucking building years ago. Mm-hmm. They've never had a desire to do more. There's something to be said about that,
1: yeah, and if you had done that <laughs> i mean I mean moving to a secondary tertiary city in terms of population is one thing, but also it's like a tertiary city in like the San francisco <laughs> that was listed among your <laughs> primary cities. Listen, but if you had had the foresight to do that even in in, in a I mean, what you're saying is like, okay, you're approving the building. You're also like, if you had been the first one into a neighborhood and you were the first one who were like, I love this place. And I think that like this place deserves good food and culture and for people to come here. And if you had had the money to buy the building, like that's the investment you're talking about. Like why, why, why help the landlords develop neighborhoods? Why be the, why 99 the, be the, the of <laughs> 99% of landlords can go fuck
0: themselves. 99% of landlords <laughs> can go fuck themselves.
1: Yeah. Why do you say that that advice is going to piss people off, though?
0: Because it's another level of like, how the fuck am I going to do that? Right? Really? Like, I can't, how? I can barely raise money to raise my first restaurant. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? I don't have the means. I would wait. I would fight. And I would open up in a place where you could. Mm-hmm. Again, you know what a good example is? Pastor O'Connell in a little Washington. Mm-hmm. That dude opened up almost three hours away from Washington, D.C., like a two-hour drive at minimum at a time when, in a town that nobody cared about, there was like nothing there. It was a dilapidated house. What do you know? It's a three Michelin star restaurant. It's become one of the premier dining destinations of the Washington, D.C. area. Hmm, another restaurant. Huh, a chef that just got fired from another place bought a place called the French Laundry.
1: I was huh. going to say, little town called Yuntville. Well. What the fuck? I mean, let's not even talk about like, let's, let's, let's talk about our, our, our very dear friend as well. Like we're not even just talking about like bucolic farmhouses but, but, but these like, are, Chris before they became expensive. These were dirt cheap. Sure. But we, I mean, beyond that, like not even, I'm saying like, not even like nice countryside stuff. Like fucking Chris Bianco is the King of <laughs> Arizona, man. <laughs> like,
0: you know, that dude, that dude must've done a lot of hallucinogenic mushrooms in <laughs> Brooklyn. <laughs> I love you, Chris Bianco, but I still don't believe how you got to fucking Phoenix, Arizona in 1987, unless you were right. on peyote or, or something. Because right. I don't know how you saw it. Or, you know, you had the, the similarions <laughs> from JR Token. He's, he's, and you
1: saw something that nobody else saw. He's just following your advice, man. It's like don't don't think that like you need to lower your standard. But if you're gonna if you're a Chris Bianco level cook and you can or chef and you can do it anywhere? Why not or do someone like Paul Portalota in
0: Milwaukee, mm-hmm. Wisconsin. I'm like, that guy has like 25 restaurants there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I was just starting out, I wouldn't move to San Francisco for the obvious reasons to open up a <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> this has all
1: just been a long <laughs>
0: time I, mean, I, I, o- I would go to the West Oakland, clearly. But um no, I would I would go to a place, you know. I would probably go to, like say, Oklahoma City. Because
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know what? That basketball team's going to be fucking good for like 20 years.
1: <laughs> that was the kid in Oklahoma City. I'm a City big thunder. fan of
0: Josh Giddy, man. And, <laughs> and they're going to be good. They're going to be so good. But seriously, it's, you, need to, you need to keep your options open. And it doesn't have to be in places. Right? And I would just do things like that. I would. That would be my recommendation.
1: I, I actually th- I thought about this when when you talk about the Bay Area law, just just to put like a fine point on it. I'm always like, you know what would this is my stupid armchair sociology turn, Chang. I'm like, you know what would alleviate the whole entire Bay Area housing crisis and, and like crazy, unaffordable housing would be if people would just make San Jose a little cooler <laughs> if like some cooler shit would open in San Jose and people and would become more desirable, like you would alleviate a massive housing crisis <laughs> I'm just saying.
0: I would open up in San Jose in a fucking heartbeat San Jose is where to fucking
1: open I'm not kidding
0: that's because that hockey that hockey team that <laughs> uniform hasn't changed in 25 years <laughs> Just the, the shark sharks. eating a hockey stick and that's why San Jose is an amazing city what a great logo <laughs>
1: It's an insane logo, and you think about it. I've never stopped to think about it. It's a shark eating a hockey stick, and the shark is going to be wearing a hockey jersey. The whole and they're thing fucking is it's good. So. They're always good. Perennial contenders. Um,
0: and the other thing I, I wanted to say with this whole idea of uh, the new, right, this whole yearly phoenix of restaurants rising up stuff, there are a lot of people thinking, am I good enough to open up a restaurant?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this should go into a larger conversation about talent versus grit and determination. I've had a lot of conversations of late with people, you know, that are contemplating their next moves or what do they do? Do I understand this industry? Do I open up a restaurant? Am I good enough to do so? I think if you look at other parts of culture, you will be surprised that not every single person that is successful is the most gifted, most naturally talented. It almost never happens. Mm-hmm. It's usually the person that wasn't the most talented that really was struggling, but through that struggle, they had that vision, and I'm not just talking about myself or something like that. I just think a lot of people that were very successful, especially opening up restaurants, they weren't the best cook in the kitchen and if I think if you ask yourself, especially from in my career, the best cooks in the kitchen almost have never transitioned to being like a successful chef mm-hmm. owning a restaurant it just rarely i'm not saying that it doesn't happen it happens but it doesn't happen nearly as much as that cook you're like that fucker is successful what the fuck i work yeah. i can't believe that i work with that guy that guy was a blazing inferno every night i don't know what the fuck
1: yeah i mean it, it's like it's like the best writers in the world, the best novelists weren't all just like the ones who got the straight A's in English class. <laughs> like It's kind of like the comp, right? Or like weren't the best at writing like their essays.
0: And and that's why I, I, I think there's a lot of people right now, there's this whole new movement. So many people opening up restaurants, people wanting to open up restaurants. There's this, it's crazy. You would think that after these, Past three years, nobody would want to do it, but there are more and more restaurants. And this goes back to the idea of, I hope that people are doing new, interesting things and different things. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to have talent, but you do need to have some experience. You do need to have vision and you need to have something to say, a point of view, which is why a restaurant like Yangban Society is so influential, important to me is because they have a point of view that a lot of people aren't doing. You don't have to be super talented to do this you don't have to be the very best to have a successful restaurant you just have to have something to say so before you open up a restaurant before you open up another italian trattoria doing seasonal market stuff with focaccia as your first fucking course (laughs) (laughs) yeah right again there are restaurants that can do that and they're good (laughs) and i love them but it's not your. It's, it's not. You it's don't not need here. to open up another one.
1: <laughs> Basically, if you were thinking about doing that, you don't need to do it. <laughs> uh, speaking of which,
0: you know, you know, what's a great restaurant in LA is Antico Nuevo. That place is so good. And it's mm. uh, so good. Such a good restaurant. Again, like, not a surprise. The guy's amazing. But because it's so good, you're going to see a lot of restaurants trying to do like a very similar thing, but you can't. So don't do it. Do something else. You just have to something to say, this is where I I would love to get Jerry Saltz back on because it doesn't mean you have to be the most naturally gifted with the perfect resume, the perfect CV. You just have to have something to say that is distinctly different than anyone else. And right now that may seem very difficult, but it's not, it's really not. It could Mm -hmm. literally just be, I'm making spicy fermented Korean soybean stew. And that's all I'm fucking making. I want to make yeah. it better than you could ever make it. That's it. You got to believe that's going to get people in, in, into your restaurant. You have to have that belief. So I just hope that's what we're going to see more of in the, in the coming months and years. You don't have to be the most talented person to do this. You just have, have the most beautiful idea. That's what I really believe.
1: And then we got to give those people time to go back to your first point tie a nice little bow on it you got to give those people some time to what figure talking it out about.
0: <laughs> they got to get it ready they have to
1: have that idea <laughs> polished and ready to go and right. a po- you know early acceptance into harvard right away right you didn't ferment you didn't make your denjang overnight how is that how are, how are you not ready for this
0: well right. and, and again it goes back to an interview we had with david epstein uh, he, he wrote the book range I, re- I rarely recommend people read that you just don't know if somebody may be struggling or somebody may feel like they're not fitting in at a certain job or a restaurant it doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful you just got to give them time i hope with all these new restaurants that are opening some of the ones that are very very bad might be the ones that change the whole restaurant game but you got to give them oxygen you got to give them unconditional support and love and that's why i wanted to talk about this is that we need new ideas we need to support the new restaurants that are going to struggle. Some restaurants aren't, but the very best restaurants might be the ones that just need time to grow into their space. And legitimately, I think that anybody that worked in this business at top tier restaurants will say that it takes on average minimum six months for a restaurant to gel. It just does. I think that's, I won't say it's common acceptance, but it's just true. You know, another thing I would say is, Just because you say you worked in the business doesn't mean you worked in the business. (laughs) It's a cuck. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's different... Doesn't mean you were good either. I, I, I think good is a very relative word, clearly, but just because you put time into something, it's the same thing we're talking about. Just because you're of a certain age doesn't mean you're actually mature. Right. It's how many hands of poker you've played and how the intention you've had at that restaurant, right? You can be great and you can learn a lot at a very sort of meager, poor restaurant, right? In terms of, but like, there's, there's no perfect way to describe this. I'm just saying like, we have to be better at saying just because somebody works somewhere doesn't mean they're qualified. Th- this goes into cooking school and my fucking hatred of a lot of cooking school. Like just for example, one of the issues I have with cooking school that hasn't changed in years is that if you graduate say, from the CIA. It's like a lobbyist. It's a recurring recruitment door. Big hotel chains will take, like, 5 to 10% of each graduating class and say, hey, we're going to pay you six figures. You can move to Hawaii. You can move to the Maldives or whatever, and uh, you're going to start off like you're, like in the Army, if you graduate from college, you're immediately like a lieutenant, right, if you enlist. Mm -hmm. You're immediately going to be a (laughs) (laughs) sous-chef.
1: Right. Upon graduation. Two
0: years at a Hotel that's got five stars, whatever, whatever. It's like, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: Well, this is like why CVs are so difficult to make any judgment on, right? Everyone's like, every CV, I bet you, every CV you've ever received at Momofuku, the person worked at Noma.
0: <laughs> like, well, or, 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 it's, or it's like, planet. hey, I spent like three years working at this restaurant. But you gotta ask themselves, were you only the PM crew? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you never once learned how to make any of the dishes that you're actually making.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You've never done real mise en place. Okay. Just because you work somewhere doesn't mean you know how to make anything And that's just the part of this where we're at right now. Is you, if you had one kitchen crew per day, that's the old school. That's shift pay. You're working a hundred hour weeks. That's just not happening anymore. So it'd be divided up. Are you working AM or PM? And if you see that this person's only worked PM, it's like okay, it's an incomplete resume because you're just assembling food. A lot of the fucking restaurants today are food assembly lines. That's just not a lot of them. Almost every one, you have to, but it doesn't mean you know anything. Anyway, I don't even know how the fuck we started talking about this.
1: I think we need. I think we need some. We need to establish some rules for credibility. People need to earn their stripes. Is the point? Yeah.
0: Just like anyone can start a fucking podcast. What the fuck?
1: (laughs) But here's the difference, Dave. If anybody ever asked us, I don't think either one of us would ever describe ourselves as a podcaster. (laughs) No. Describe me as a celebrity chef, okay? (laughs) Slash
0: podcaster. What the fuck is that? That's a sad business card. (laughs) David Chang, celebrity chef. Fuck.
1: (laughs) No, I'm a venture capitalist, man. (laughs) David Chick, celebrity chef. Do you think it? Hold on, hold on. I was going to ask you. Do you think that there are people with business cards that say "celebrity chef" on them? Should
0: start. My favorite. My favorite is underwater ceramics technician.
1: <laughs> Your dishwasher. Amazing.
0: Give us five stars,
1: please. Please. <laughs>